Welcome, everyone, to Creating a Family. Talk about foster, adoptive, and kinship care. I'm Dawn Davenport. I am the host of this show, as well as the director of the nonprofit creatingafamily.org. Today, we're going to be talking about basic baby care. We will be talking with Kristen O'Dell. She is a board-certified family nurse practitioner with almost two decades of working with over 10,000 newborns and their families in her hospital practice of neonatology and newborn medicine. Welcome, Kristen, to Creating a Family. Thank you, Dawn. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be on your show today. We're going to hit all the high points here. Feeding, sleeping, and pooping. And then make sure you hang around to the end because we will have tips for new parents, new parents of newborns. So this should be fun. All right, let's begin with feeding. Now, the vast majority of adoptive parents will be bottle feeding their baby. So how do you choose a formula? That's a great question. So typically, the discharging hospital will let you know what the baby has been feeding in the hospital. It's a good rule of thumb to try to keep the baby on that formula and not switch right after going home. There's a lot of transitional things going on and we don't want to implement any gut issues. So if we don't have to, I would try to keep the baby on what the baby is tolerating in the hospital. Now that could differ depending on if the baby's preterm has any already digestive issues or full term, but on the whole a full term healthy baby would usually be feeding Similac or Enfamil without any extra calories or additives to it. And typically in today's world, those two are getting easier to find and it's not as stressful as it once was a little while back. So mostly Similac or Enfamil. All right. Not all by any means, but some of the babies that our families will be working with will have been exposed prenatally. They may be born premature or they may have neonatal abstinence syndrome. Does formula differ at all for those babies? In some cases. So some premature babies, depending on how premature they are, may be sent home a higher caloric formula like Enficare, which has 22 calories per ounce instead of the regular 20 calories per ounce. So that way, when the baby's taking the certain volume that they're taking, they're getting extra calories packed in there to hopefully help them with weight gain and catch up if they're premature. And in the same case, sometimes babies who go home with neonatal abstinence syndrome, because of the nature of that disorder, Order, they can have excess moving around and may burn through more calories, which also may potentiate their risk for losing more weight because of their excess metabolism and, you know, sometimes crying and moving and just everything that they go through. And so sometimes they also are sent home with extra calories as well. But if they are showing consistent weight gain in the hospital prior to delivery on a regular formula, then that's what they'll be sent home on. But if they had a weight loss issue while in the hospital, we will typically increase their calories in the hospital, make sure they tolerate that, make sure they're gaining weight on that, and then send them home on that. So before you buy any formula, you would probably wait almost close until discharge time because sometimes formulas can be changed up to very close to discharge time. So you don't want to go and buy a whole bunch of formula and then have the baby come home with something different just days before they come home. So I would say, you know, it's a good idea if you know what the baby's taking. Sometimes our neonatal absence babies are in the hospital for a month, you may have an idea they're coming home on this formula, maybe get one of it just to have. And then if you're interested more in buying a bulk or you have the opportunity to buy bulk, wait until you get closer to going home and you know what the baby's definitely going home on. 
That is very good and practical advice, <laughs> especially because oftentimes we're all so anxious that we want to get everything done. We've been waiting for this baby for a while. We really want to get everything laid out. So there's a, a chance to kind of go overboard. So is liquid or dry formula better for a baby? And by dry, I mean powdered formula that, that you then mix with water. Now, again, this will come in finances come into play with answering this question. Liquid formula is more expensive than powdered formula. If you can afford it or it's within the budget or within some people have certain insurances that will pay, I think it's great to start with a ready-made formula for a couple of reasons. So that would be a liquid formula. One is they're sterile when they come. So you don't need to sterilize them. Powdered formulas need to be sterilized. And I can go into that further and probably wonder the, who the next other questions. But for a newborn baby, a premature baby for sure, but any newborn baby less than two or even three months, if you can afford it, I would use ready-made formula. It's easier for you. It's quicker to prepare. You can travel with it a little bit easier typically. And the risk of contamination or requiring sterilization is really none. So as far as ease goes and ease of mind, I would always choose ready-made. I've done so for my own children in the first couple of months of life. And the reason for that is once they get to be two, three months and beyond, they have more of an immune system. And so the risk to them, if they did get some type of contaminated formula lowers, they have a more of an ability to fight off an infection at that older age. Some parents still choose to use a sterile liquid formula even beyond that, but they're taking so much formula by that age, it usually becomes cost prohibitive. But when they're so little and they're taking such small amounts every three hours, you're usually able to afford a liquid liquid formula for at least the first month. So I would suggest using that as a goal for yourself when taking home a baby just for ease of mind, time saving, and just easier for you and for the baby. I'm glad you raised the issue of sterilization. So I have two questions on that. One, you mentioned that you had to sterilize with dry formula. So that's one question. And the second one is, is it still necessary to sterilize bottles? if you are washing them in a dishwasher. So first answer the, the dry formula and then tell us about what we need to do about bottles. Okay, so this is a common question that I get and one that's often answered incorrectly. Current guidelines, especially from the CDC, and this is easily searchable on the CDC website, I'm happy to provide a link. I also have some references that I use for my clients. Basically, when the powder comes, a lot of people will boil the water thinking they need to boil the water, and then they'll cool the water and mix the formula in with the cooled water. But you really want to boil the formula because the powdered formula itself can be contaminated with Cronobacter. And this happens sometimes in packaging or the facility. So it doesn't come sterile. There is a small risk that there can be a contamination in that powder. So you want to boil your water, let it cool for a couple of minutes so it's not actively boiling. Then you mix your powder in with it. And then you're going to cool that formula enough for the baby to eat it. You would want to check it on your wrist before you feed. If it's really still hot and the baby's screaming right now for it, you can use some ice water, like swirl it around in like a little ice water bath so you can give that bottle to the baby right away. Now, it's such a pain in the tush to have to constitute formula and boil it like that. I usually suggest that my clients make what they need for the entire day once mm -hmm. in the morning. It really isn't time effective to have to boil eight times a day while you're trying to feed the baby. So you would right. calculate what you would need for a 24-hour period. You would boil that amount of water, mix that amount of powder, and keep it in a larger, clean, sterile, some type of clean container in your refrigerator 
you'd pour from that into your bottle each time you needed a bottle and warm that bottle up in a bottle warmer. And that's how you would give formula throughout the day. So do we need to sterilize bottles regardless of whether we're using liquid or powdered and assuming that we're running them through a dishwasher? I would say no, running it through a dishwasher is sterilization enough. If you don't have a dishwasher, you can get away with washing bottles through hot, soapy water. If you're reusing your bottle often, then you can use hot, soapy water in between. But then once at the end of the day, if you don't have a dishwasher, I will put it in a bottle sterilizer. All right. And what type of bottle is best? What are the most current styles of bottles that are being used? And is there a preference either through ease or through for the baby or whatever, depending on the type we use? So typically with the babies, you're mentioning that you may be taking home neonatal abstinence syndrome babies, premature babies. Really a bottle is going to differ from baby to baby. So I will say that you will have some babies that do better on some bottles and some babies prefer another Mm -hmm. bottle. It's the feel of the silicone. It's the shape of the nipple. Also think about the shape of their mouth. So some things just fit in differently like a puzzle and each baby is different. But you really want to try to prevent air intake when you're bottle feeding a baby eight to 12 times a day. And so we usually suggest a Dr. Brown's bottle for a neonatal abstinence syndrome baby. That's one great one to start with. Also, I like the Playtex vent air bottles very much for those babies as well. My biggest advice to bottles is don't buy 10 of the same. Buy three to five different brands of bottle, one each. So you have maybe a MAM bottle, maybe a Playtex vent air. Uh, Dr. Brown's and maybe two other, you know, ones that you see in there. I'm blanking on two other names, but there's lots of different brands, but the MAMs are popular, Dr. Brown's and the Playtex Ventair. I would get at least one each of those. And when you get the baby home with you, you're going to try each one. Don't try each one once. You may have to try each one a few times until you find which one the baby feeds better with. Doesn't have milk spilling out of the mouth. So there's not a lot of clicking sounds or milk loss. You're looking for those with fit as far as the nipple goes. And then you're also assessing how much gas the baby has afterwards. If the baby seems uncomfortable, how fast the baby can feed through that bottle. Now you want them taking the feed in about anywhere between 15 to 20 minutes. If they're taking a really long time for the feed, it may not be a good fit for some reason, or you may have to have an evaluation done. If they're sucking it down in five to 10 minutes, that might be too fast. They may get a lot of air in. They may then throw up afterwards. So you want a nice, even flow with that nipple. And so you're kind of looking for these things and testing those bottles. Once you find one out of those that you really like and your baby jives with, then you're going to go and get eight to 10 of them. So you have them and you can wash them and don't have to wash them after every single feed. Does the temperature of the formula matter? So you do not have to warm your baby's formula. That is usually parent or baby preference, but most babies do like their formula warmed or even room temperature. Feeding a baby cold formula might be shocking for them. If you kind of think how it feels like to swallow ice cream, it may be a little shocking at first. So they may not be ready for that. If you're doing that because of necessity for some reason, they can get used to that. There's nothing wrong. You won't hurt a baby by feeding them formula from the fridge if they're screaming and they want something. But typically, babies do prefer their formula is warmed up a little bit. And then you just check it on your wrist to make sure it's not too hot. And I would suggest doing so for a baby for at least the first few months of life. After they're a couple of months old, they're sitting up more, they may start eating some food. You could probably start feeding them room temp or even chilled drinks. All right. We certainly know that some babies eventually get put on a specialized formula. What are the symptoms? What would you as a parent look for to determine whether or not you should be talking with your pediatrician or nurse practitioner about 
changing to a different formula or moving to one of the specialized formulas. Yes, this is definitely a conversation you want to have with your pediatric provider. I would not be changing baby's formulas on your own or based on what a friend said or what you did with your other child. It's definitely a conversation you want to have with your provider first and also to make sure you're doing so safely for the baby. Switching like from one bottle to the next with different formulas can cause an issue with their gut because of the difference in the osmolarity of different formulas. Some babies tolerate a switch fine and some babies need a more gradual switch. But things that you would look for in order to start that conversation with your providers would be blood in the stool. That can indicate possibly a milk allergy and might require you to change the formula to something that's lactose-free. If you're noticing spitting up after every single feed, there might be reflux going on and you can talk to them. They might decide to do some type of medication for that or even some type of a formula that's designed for reflux. Those formulas can have additives to them to try to weigh them down and keep them down in the belly so they don't come up so easy. So there are different treatments that you can do for some of these GI issues. Sometimes it's a switch in formula and sometimes it's not. But basically blood in the stool, spitting up after every single bottle. A baby who is really colicky, which I can describe and get into that later on. But if you think your baby is colicky, it's another conversation to have. Sometimes there are more gentle formulas. We're not sure exactly what causes colic, but it could be GI upset. And so you may want to play around with different formulas for that. And another big thing that you may want to talk to your pediatrician about switching formulas would be poor weight gain or failure to thrive. So a baby who's going home premature or with neonatal abstinence syndrome may go home and not really be gaining weight or going along the broke curve like the pediatrician would like. And so in that case, they may want to also change the formula at that time to add more calories, protein, vitamins, minerals, and things like that to support their growth and development. So how often should a baby eat? And of course, that question depends on how old the baby is. So let's say a baby within the first month of life and then all the way up to like six months, how often should they be taking a bottle? Well, you took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to say that answer will differ very greatly depending <laughs> on the age of the baby. You know, many parents will ask that question to a pediatrician who may answer it. And then they think that answer stands for a really long time, but really that answer changes as time goes on. Mm-hmm. So basically a baby should, if you're taking home a newborn baby, they're going to eat on demand, which means pretty much when they wake and cry, they're probably hungry. And it's going to be an average of about every two to three hours. So that's going to go on. And a formula feeding baby will usually be on somewhat of a schedule. It's different for a breastfeeding baby because they haven't quite gotten established with breastfeeding, but for a formula fed baby, they're going to eat about every two to three hours. Now, when they get to be about anywhere between two months old, they might start sleeping more through the night. You're talking like you may get a break of five to six hours. So they may skip a feed in the middle of the night and give you a little more time sleeping. You wouldn't want to wake them. There's no need to wake a sleeping baby to eat unless you're having an issue like failure to thrive, poor waking, and your pediatrician advises you to feed on schedule every two to three hours. In those cases, you might need to wake the baby to make sure they're taking in the caloric intake that they need. But other than that, you basically, when they're zero to two months, you're feeding them on demand. Usually when they wake up, it's an average of every two to three hours. Beyond that, they will probably feed about every three hours during the day and then at at night, you may get a time where they'll skip a feed and you may get a five to six hour break at night. 
Every baby's different. At which upon you kiss the ground, that baby walks home and you get That back. is right. <laughs> At first you think something's wrong. Like, why is uh-huh. the baby not waking to eat? And you tiptoe uh-huh. in there and you peer in. You think everything's good. They're breathing. They're just really not hungry yet. But some babies, keep in mind, not every baby does that. And it can be very different from baby to baby. Some babies will wake up every three hours to eat or up to six months. And even beyond that, because at some point it could become a habit for them to wake up for that feed, not necessarily for nutrition, but something Mm -hmm. for comfort and something they're looking for. So every baby will be different. These are all rules of thumb. But if your baby's not doing exactly that, it just might be that they have a different need or an emotional need, or they really are hungry every three hours and they do want. And in that case, you could try to increase their feed volume at certain night feeds in order to try to get them through a longer period at night, if they'll take it. Mm -hmm. I don't know if this was the American Pediatric Association, but I have heard of pediatricians recommending that parents wake their babies every three hours at night to feed them. And obviously, if you have a premature baby, a small baby, a baby who is not gaining weight or any problem, that's a different issue. But this is for perfectly healthy babies, which I must say always seemed absolutely nuts to me. But Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't really recommend it. Like you said, if everything is going well, it's a healthy full-term baby, gaining weight appropriately, you're really kind of feeding on cue for them at that age. But you can't really spoil a baby at that age either. If they're waking and crying, they need something. They're too young to cry it out at that age. And typically Mm -hmm. it's usually food or a diaper change. And sometimes it's just comfort and company and they want to feel and smell you and be near you and feel that Mm -hmm. warmth. But, you know, at that younger age, even six months and below, you know, they can continue to wake up every three Mm -hmm. hours and then they will have these growth periods. When babies have growth spurts, it also means that they need to take in more calories because they're gaining weight, they're getting bigger. And they're telling you, you know, the usual two ounces or three ounces that you're feeding me is not enough to sustain the big growth spurt I'm about to have, or I just had. Mm -hmm. And when growth spurts happen, you will notice that they'll be more cranky, crying more, waking up more, waking up all night, keeping you up Mm -hmm. all night feeding. And that's because they're trying to communicate to you that they just need more. So when you, if it's a growth spurt time, which usually happens around two months, four months, six months, then you may recognize that that is a time where they just need more volume. And you might have to try to play around with your feed times and your volume times to get them comfortable and satiated where they're at. And instead of going three ounces, you might try four ounces and going so forth. So you might have to make some more formula in the morning. Mm -hmm. So other feeding options that adoptive parents sometimes utilize, one is induced lactation to breastfeed. And another one is using donated breast milk. So let's talk a little bit about, do you have any thoughts on trying to induce lactation? I will say that as far as I know, the vast majority of women are not going, unless they have breastfed previously, are not going to be able to produce enough milk. But they can sometimes produce some milk, and there are also systems where you can have formula being fed through a tube attached to your breast. So let's talk about first induced lactation and then donated breast milk. Sure. So I'm not a IBLC, a lactation consultant, and I have training in lactation, but I will say that these are wonderful, excellent options for feeding an adoptive baby that comes into your household. So to induce lactation, you really do need to talk to two people before you even think about starting. That would be your OB about sometimes they can start some hormonal medications to try to get your body ready to try to produce and lactate a little bit. And then also your lactation consultant 
consultant, you should be able to find one through your pediatrician, through your hospital. You can find a lot. There's lots of lactations, usually local. There's a national database. You'd want to talk to a lactation consultant about going through, you know, lactogenesis. So they would come up with a plan for you on how often you should be doing some pumping, what happens if you get something, how to store it, things like that. And so definitely you have two professionals you need to get involved in that before you start it. But I think it's a, a wonderful thing and you would be more successful if you have lactated before and breastfed a baby before. You do need to be really committed to that plan. Mm -hmm. You need to hand express or pump sometimes eight to 12 times a day to try to get some in it. And it is possible that you can get some, but usually unlikely that you get enough to feed the baby all that they'll need. And then you can supplement with formula or donor milk. If you are thinking about inducing lactation, there are also galactagogues that you can take to increase your milk supply, like fenugreek, blessed thistle, milk thistle are commonly used. But again, before you start any supplements, you want to talk to your OB first and then also your lactation consultant. Also doing skin to skin, you know, while you're doing some of that pumping. So if the baby is already with you in your household and you're trying to initiate that, having the baby near you, by you while you're doing the hand expressing and pumping also can help with those hormones that help produce milk. Now, using an SNS, that's the supplemental nursing system that is using what looks like a feeding tube that can come over your shoulder and be taped to your nipple. And then there's a syringe at the other end that you would feed either donor milk or formula through while the baby may latch and breastfeed. And so you'll actually be giving the baby maybe some of the milk you're producing. If you're trying to induce your own lactation, you're also giving some of whatever's in the syringe to make sure the baby's getting enough, but you will get that closeness, that bonding, also that skin to skin. And sometimes babies' mouths do a better job of the pump and the hand express of getting some milk to come out. And so that's why it's a great idea to try SNS if you are committed to doing some of that pumping. Donor milk, you would get that from a milk bank. So if you're interested in that, there are national databases that you can call to find out where you can get one in your area. Sometimes you can call your local hospital or NICU. Many larger NICUs will have one there. Some insurances are paying for it. That is a very cutting edge thing right now. So I'm not sure about paying for it. It can be really expensive. And I don't condone this, but I do know it's done. Some women do it within the community. You know, when you get milk from a, a donor milk bank, it has been checked to make sure that there aren't any diseases or any type of contaminants, drugs, or anything in it. So you do want to get your donor milk from a milk bank. That doesn't mean that every woman does. So if you, you know, some women will go to the community or ask a friend or someone who's lactating to donate as well. So there are other options. It depends on your comfort level or what you're able to do based on the adoption agency or the foster agency. So how do you know if your baby is getting enough food? Now you're bottle feeding, so you actually know the quantity going in. So that makes it easier. But how do you know if it's enough? So great question. It does make it a little easier when you can quantify exactly what the baby's getting. Typically it's weight gain. You know, we're not weighing the babies every day, but at the pediatrician's visit, you want to see that the baby is growing along the growth curve, gaining consistent weight. That's a great indication that the baby is eating enough, getting enough and sleeping enough. But when you feed a baby a feed, if the baby wakes up an hour after the feed and acts hungry or sucks on hands, shows signs of hunger, like rooting, which is sticking their tongue out, 
sucking on a finger, just excessively crying, then if they're waking up an hour after a feed, that probably means they didn't get enough to feed before. And it might be time to increase your volume. So, you know, that's how you kind of know it's time to give a little bit more. Now, how you know you gave enough is usually they should sleep about two to three hours in between feeds, which is why if they're waking up early, that's an indication they're not getting enough. You want to see a certain amount of peas and poops. So typically after the baby's home and being bottle fed, you want to see a minimum of about five pee diapers a day. That's a minimum. So that's showing you that the baby's getting enough, taking enough. You also want that urine to be light yellow. You don't want it to be dark yellow or orange. If a baby is dehydrated, the urine can also look red with blood in the diaper or even crystals that look like salt or sugar crystals in the diaper can be an indication of dehydration or not enough feed. So if you see any of those, you'd want to increase your baby's volume or talk to your pediatrician. Babies will also be satiated after eating. If you're feeding a baby an ounce and the bottle is empty and they don't seem satiated and they really want more and they're awake and it didn't console them to sleep, then maybe they need an ounce and a half that time around. So there you're looking at a lot of different physical signs to the baby. You're looking at peas and poops, and that will kind of tell you if you're giving enough or you need to give more. And the signs of dehydration, if you see them, that just means you need to bump it up a little bit or talk to your pediatrician if there's another issue going on. So some babies spit up a lot. They this is not they just do it naturally. It's not a, a sign of improper or incorrect formula. They just are spitter uppers. But it looks like a lot of milk sometimes when it comes out. So you think, oh my gosh, I just put all that milk in. Now it all came out. So if your baby does spit up a lot, when should you worry that they aren't getting enough food? Great question. And one I struggle with on a personal level, I had a little one who was born at five pounds and had very bad reflux for the first two years of his life. And he spit up five to eight times a day, uh, required me to feed him extra. He he would spit up and then be hungry afterwards because he just spit up everything he ate. So when babies, especially premature babies or even babies who might have some medical issues, most babies, even full-term babies, we all have a sphincter that in our esophagus that keeps the food down there. So when we swallow, it opens up and then it closes to keep the food down. But in a baby, it doesn't close all the way. It's open a little bit. That's why babies spit up so easy. Or when you lay them down, the food comes back up a lot easier. So it is good to try to make sure you burp a baby sitting up and then even keep them up a little bit after a feed. So you don't lay them flat down and the formula doesn't come right back up the esophagus. Now that sphincter tightens over time as they get bigger, gain weight, gain musculature, that sphincter will tighten. And in some babies, it doesn't. And those babies can be refluxy babies, which means that spitting up can continue beyond two, four, six months, and even a year, because that sphincter may be open a little bit, or there could be another reason why they have reflux. When you'll be concerned is when they're not gaining weight. So if they're spitting up after every feed, that can happen for some babies, but they still may gain weight despite that. It may look like more than they're actually spitting up and they may be getting enough calories to gain weight. So you'd be concerned if you're talking to your pediatrician about all this spitting up and then they're also showing that your weight gain has tapered off or even lost some weight. That would be a sign of concern and you would want to do some more possibly imaging or medication or formula changing at that time. And then of course, if they're spitting up a lot and they are having other signs of other worry signs, signs of dehydration, like I mentioned before with the dry diapers or concentrated diapers, if they are spitting up across the room. So mostly babies, when they spit up, they blub out of their mouths or out of their nose, and it just kind of dribbles down and it gets a little over you. If they spit up and it shoots 
across the room, that is a forceful vomit and it's not normal. So that would be something you would want to have evaluated. But a blub up out of the mouth and the nose, a spit up after every feed, as long as they seem to be able to manage it okay and you're able to clean it up and sometimes they're hungry afterwards, that's usually a normal spit up. We had one we called Mount Vesuvius. He, uh, <laughs> after every meal, every feeding, up until about a certain age, and then, of course, it stopped. And keep in mind, that's going to create a lot of laundry for you. So if you have one of those babies that just happens to be a refluxy or a spitter-upper, that is a baby you're going to need an extra car seat cover, extra <laughs> crib covers. You're going to need some extra bird cloths. You need to bring extra outfits for you and the baby mm -hmm. everywhere you go. And you will go through everything you think you bring with you. So that is a baby you just bring extra for and just get a really good washing machine and extra yeah. soap because you'll be doing laundry every day. <laughs> and it won't last forever, or at least uh, with That's your son, right. it did, I, but for, yeah, for mine. My not. son, it went for longer than normal, but typically it resolves, you know, by a year of life. It does get better. That is a very hard time to go through. You feel bad for the baby. You feel bad for you and all your laundry, but it does get better in time. If you get to be about a year and it's still occurring and they're walking and eating food and still vomiting that much, then you may want to talk to your pediatrician about seeing a GI specialist. But definitely if it's shooting across the room, that's not normal. If it has blood in it, if it's green, those are abnormal vomits and you would want to talk to your pediatrician. So what is the current thinking on when to introduce solid foods? American Academy of Pediatrics recommends to wait as close to six months to starting solid foods, but with a pediatrician's guidance, sometimes we will recommend starting as early as four to five months with certain signs in place, meaning the baby really should be tracking food when you bring it from the plate to you, to your mouth, watching it, raking. They should try to be able to rake with their fingers, things towards them. They should try to be able to sit up unassisted. So when you, they're meeting some of these milestones, then they may show food readiness. But definitely if it's before six months of age, you would want to talk to your pediatrician before you implement that. All right. Let me pause a minute to ask you, have you subscribed yet to our free monthly e-newsletter? If you go to bit.ly slash talk about adoption guide today, you will get the let's talk about adoption, talking about adoption across the different ages and stages of your child's life. It is a terrific guide and it is a terrific newsletter. So check it out at bit.ly slash talk about adoption guide. That's all one word, talk about adoption guide. Now, we have talked about feeding. Now we're going on to the next major category and probably the one that every new parent is desperate for, and that is sleep. So for sleep, let's talk about what is a typical wake sleep pattern for a newborn. That will be different for every newborn, but typically they're going to sleep an average of about 16 to 17 hours a day, which is actually pretty nice. What becomes difficult for us is they can have large wakeful periods in the middle of the night when we want to sleep, but they usually will wake up and eat every two to three hours and then sleep for an hour or two in between the feeds. And that's for the first two, three, up to about a first month, they will have a pattern like that. When they get into their second month, they can have more wakeful times and be awake more in between the feeds, but still eat about every two to three hours. And at night, they're usually getting up about, you know, every three hours or so to eat. 
The trick is to try to feed them in a low stimulus environment so that hopefully they're not awake and ready to party. They're awake to eat and then they go back to sleep. So when can you expect on average your baby to sleep five to six hours? And let me just tell the new parents out there that that is called sleeping through the night. Uh, if you get a six hour uh, stretch or a five hour stretch of sleeping, that's how we define sleeping through the night. You're going to have to wait a while for your eight hours. But uh, so when can you expect a baby to sleep five to six hours? That's right. Five to six hours is considered sleeping through the night. So if you're used to getting your eight hours of sleeping through the night, be ready. That's going to be a while before it comes. But newborns, you know, do have shorter sleep cycles. They'll sleep for about an hour at a time. But again, they can sleep longer when they're first born. It's irregular. So like I say, these are rules of thumb as far as how often they'll wake up. But at some point, especially bottle feeding, maybe they will get into some sort of a pattern. You may be able to expect we'll feed a bottle at 11 and then we'll have another one at two or three and then we'll have another one at six. And then at some point you might be able to skip that two or three one, push that 11 feed back to midnight. And then your next feed will be 6 a.m. Hopefully that makes sense. So there are times when you'll be able to try to adjust these feeds a little bit. When they're newborn, their stomachs are very small, which is why they need to eat so frequently. And that's why this changes as they get bigger and they get older, their stomachs get bigger, they can hold a little more. It takes a little longer to digest that larger feed. And so they'll stay asleep a little bit longer. When you can expect them to sleep through the night, every baby is different. Some babies will sleep through night as early as two months. You'll have a rare baby that will do it a little bit before that. But typically on average, it's about three to four months of age that you'll start getting that five to six hour block of sleep. And again, there will be a few outliers that will continue waking up every three hours for beyond six months of age. Okay. And is the wake sleep cycle affected by either prematurity or neonatal abstinence syndrome? Yes. Babies with neonatal abstinence syndrome do have some disrupted sleep patterns due to their withdrawal symptoms that they can be experiencing. They can have increased irritability, some restlessness, difficulty settling them. It may take a lot longer to settle them back to sleep when they do wake up. And they can have periods of excessive crying, which can be really challenging to get them into a regular sleep routine. So that will be a challenge. You need to be ready for that and be ready to include certain comfort measures for neonatal abstinence syndrome babies, like a soothing environment, a low stimuli environment. So that would be darkened blinds, white noise machines, sometimes baby massage. Sometimes there's little baby heating pads that you can put with the baby. This is when you're with the baby, trying to comfort the baby and just ensuring that the baby is properly fed with good hydration and nourishment. Sometimes, like I said, they may need more food or more formula or more calories because of their increased requirement. So if they're not getting that, that can cause them to feel more hungry and awake a little bit more often. So you would definitely want to make sure you're getting the right formula at the right caloric content so that they're gaining weight and feeling satiated. And that may help them stay asleep a little bit more. So you've mentioned that on average, you can expect a baby to be waking every say three hours, two, three hours throughout the night, up until maybe around eight weeks, two months, whatever, something along those lines. At what point can you start trying to get your baby to not wake up so many times for that feeding at night? In other words, either skip that middle of the night feeding or to stretch it out and you know, get four hours rather than two to three. And how would you do that? 
So sleep training will, again, vary for each baby. You'll kind of know they're ready because they may do a little bit of it on their own. By You'll wake up for a two o'clock feed and you'll be surprised that they haven't woken yet. And you'll go back to sleep and hope you get an extra hour out. So you want to pay attention to their own sleep patterns to see when they are pushing it back on their own. And when that happens, keep in mind, if you were normally feeding your baby at 11, then you had a two o'clock feed and then you had again, you know, another 5 a.m. or a 6 a.m. feed, your, your goal is to try to cut out that 2 a.m. feed. So you may start pushing your 11 o'clock feed back to 1130 and give a little bit more in the bottle because that might push that night your feed back to 3 a.m. And eventually you'll get that last feed till maybe midnight with a little bit more volume. And then maybe you'd be able to cut that feed out and wait until 5 a.m. for the next mm-hmm. feed. So it's a gradual process. It's not something you would do in one night. It is something that really needs to be consistent with. So if there are multiple people up at night doing different things, that will make it a lot harder to try to get on some type of a sleep feeding schedule at night, but really good communication, trying to watch the clock. So you know, if they're waking up at 11 for a feed, try to push them from actually taking it till 1130 by maybe doing some playing, doing some swaddling, even like a washcloth bath, something like that to keep them busy for a half an hour and then push that feedback a half an hour. And if you do that each night, you might be able to push back that last feed, which may cut out that middle feed. And then your morning feed might have to move up a little bit, but that still may give you that five hours mm-hmm. in between. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you're doing this and it's not going well, your baby just might not be ready for it. You know, some babies are ready at two months, but really in my experience, it's three to four months that they're really ready to start trying to do some of those sleep training measures of some sort to try to cut out one of those night feeds. Well, introducing solid foods, even if watered down, help your baby sleep through the night. The old adage was, well, introduce uh, rice cereal mixed with formula, and that added bulk would actually help the baby. Is there anything to that? So I believe there is not any research that shows that works. That is sort of a wide cell that's passed on from person to person. Yep. That's how I heard about it. (laughs) (laughs) There is some bit of a danger. First of all, you'd really want to use oatmeal. If you're going to do that rice cereal, we're moving away from a little bit because of the ricin that can be a toxin for babies. So we want to try to be really careful about what rice we're using, make sure it's, you know, specialized for babies, but really we would go more towards oatmeal in there. And you have to remember that's going to really thicken the bottle. So sometimes moms will then cut the nipple in in an X pattern, which can Mm -hmm. also cause choking if they're taking that bottle and they're not used to getting that larger opening in the nipple. It can really intake a whole bunch and cause them to have some issues with swallowing and managing that. So you want to be really careful with doing that. Changing a feed like that in a baby can be disruptive to them. And really, there isn't any data that I'm aware of that really causes them to sleep longer. Some moms will do this at four months, but if you're introducing food, it can cause some issues with the gut if the gut is not ready to accept food yet and to digest those types of proteins yet. And with gut health and gut flora being so important, we don't really want to disrupt that until we're really ready that the gut is ready to take that. So I will usually say, no, I think if your baby's ready to actually eat oatmeal from a spoon, I would feed that to the baby from a spoon. You maybe even consider doing, if your baby's sitting up at five, six months doing that, then maybe save a little bit of a feed like later on at night, but I wouldn't really put it in the bottle. I would keep the bottle just formula or breast milk. Something we should have started with, didn't even think about this. To begin, the recommendations now are 
that you place the baby on their back, no pillows, no blankets, no bumpers, no stuffed animals in the bed. And uh, I think that recommendation, especially the sleeping on the back, continues until the baby is rolling over on their own. And when they're rolling over on their own, then I think there's less concern because at that point the baby can pick its head up. Anything else that I missed on the basic standards of how we get our kiddos to sleep? Right. So you're describing safe sleep practices, American Academy of Pediatrics, then to reduce the risk of SIDS. SIDS is sudden infant death syndrome where a baby can spontaneously suddenly die up to a year of age. So your risk doesn't end at six months. Your risk for SIDS goes on through the first year. So you do want to continue safe sleep practices for the year. And that is laying baby on the back. You don't have to stand over there and watch them and see if they roll over that you have to pop them back over. Once they can roll over on their own, it's okay to let them sleep in the comfortable position that they want to be in. As long as there is no pillows, we really suggest no blankets, no stuffed animals in the bed, no crib bumpers. Those are really not recommended. But yes, back to sleep for babies. If you have a baby with reflux, your pediatrician may tell you to elevate the crib. You need to follow their recommendations on how to do that because that can also increase the risk to SIDS. But sometimes they will recommend you do that for your baby because of the risk of reflux. So sometimes we will tell you to do something different than safe sleep because we need you to do that for another reason. But on a regular basis, your baby should be on a flat surface with nothing else in the crib. Babies should sleep in the room with you, but in a different sleeping service for at least the first six months. And really American Academy Pediatric recommends for the first year. So yes, we have these nurseries and we want them in their own room, but really it's recommended that at least for the first six months, they should be in the room with you. And that's for reducing SIDS risk. It is very dangerous for you to sleep with the baby on a couch, an armchair or a nursing pillow, because that is when they in our deep sleep and we're usually overtired and we think we're going to wake up when something happens. But because we're so low on sleep, when we finally do fall asleep, it is difficult for us to wake up and we may not wake up when something is wrong with the baby, meaning the baby falls into the couch cushions. That is a very common way for babies to suffocate is on couches. When moms are breastfeeding on couches, trying to get the baby away from someone else who's sleeping in the same room so that that person can sleep and then they fall asleep with the baby on the couch. So do not do that. It's not good on the couch. So baby should be fed and then put back onto their own service, but in the same room as you. So a crib in the room with you or some type of piece of baby furniture that's near your bed so you can check on the baby. Let me quickly tell you about another resource from Creating a Family. It is our interactive training support curriculum for foster, adoptive, and kinship parents. It's meant for trainings. Each one would give you 1.5 hours worth of training. They also can be used for topics to discuss as a support group. We have a curriculum library of 25 curricula for you to choose from. They are intended to be an all-in-one curriculum designed to make it as easy as possible to run a high-quality training or support group. Check it out at parentsupportgroups.org. That's parentsupportgroups.org. Or you can go to the Creating a Family website, hover over the horizontal menu that says training, and then click on support group curriculum. All right, so now we've already talked about two of the high points, feeding and sleeping. Now it's time for poop. So how often should babies poop? So what's normal? And again, that I realize that varies by age, so kind of break it up age-wise. Yep. Every baby's going to be different. You'll have some babies that will poop once or twice a day, and some babies will poop every single time you change the diaper. You know, if you're having more than 10 poops a day, 
and or they are very watery or liquid and so watery that they're almost soaking into the diaper and not laying on top of the diaper. That's a sign of diarrhea. And that needs to be evaluated by a pediatrician or even possibly the hospital because they can get dehydrated very fast if they have diarrhea. So a 10 or more stools or a very watery stool that's soaking into the diaper is not a normal stool. Or a baby that's going three or more days without a stool that's considered constipation. And so you would want to talk to your pediatrician about measures that you can take to help them with the constipation and then going forward to prevent that. But really, there's a lot of normal in between that. So some babies may poop once or twice. Some babies may poop five times a day. Poop consistency can be very soft, can be grainy looking. Formula poop in the very first couple of weeks of life is usually a very yellowish, grainy, um, soft stool. But if your baby has very hard nuggets in the diaper, that also might be some type of a constipation stool that you can tonsure your peas. Typically, I'll tell you to maybe start with some prune juice in every bottle rather than a don't feed a bottle of prune juice. You would put like a tablespoon or two in every formula bottle that you make to try to help things move along. So if your baby's having some harder stools or skipping a day or two without having them, once you get things moving, the prune juice isn't really a treatment. It's more of a preventative. All right. So what type of diaper is best? What are our options? Obviously, we've got cloth or disposable. And really with disposable, is there much difference between the different brands? So let's start off with cloth versus disposable. And then let's talk about disposable options. So a lot of that is a parent preference. It has to go with, you know, financial preference, environmental concerns. A lot of people prefer the cloth because they're not throwing out so many diapers and landfills and they can wash, but they can be very expensive in the beginning buying them. Really, diapers are going to be expensive either way that you go. So it's your preference, whether or not you want to be washing a washable diaper or throwing it out over here. So that's a personal preference. I don't usually make a recommendation on that. A mom will decide. But if you go with cloth, I'd always have a couple of extra disposable around just in case you don't have one that's clean or you run out, you have backup. As far as brand of diapers, again, many of them are very similar, but some people who have babies with really, really sensitive skin really like the Honest diapers, but I don't really find much difference in brand as far as comfort for a baby, but you will have some that believe one will absorb better than the other. I personally, I'm a Pampers girl. I think the price is great. I feel like their leaks are very minimal. And for most average babies without major skin problems or anything like that, they usually are fine. I think it's more important to pay attention to the wipes that you're using. So if you're having a baby with sensitive butt, you would want to make sure you're using a sensitive wipe with no scents, no dyes in it, because many times it's not the diaper that they have an issue with, it's the wipe. That's a really good point. We ask and we think about the diaper, but often it's the wipe that is causing, especially drying out the baby's skin. Yep. How do you treat what, first of all, how do you know if a baby has diaper rash? It sounds obvious, but let's go ahead and ask that. How do you know if a baby has diaper rash and what should you use to treat it? And when should you start applying the cream or whatever? One of my favorite questions, so it's something I talk about a lot to my postpartum clients and my hospital clients, you don't really need to use a preventative diaper rash cream on a baby's butt unless you start to see a rash. Now, keep in mind, a rash is going to start to usually start out looking a little red on the skin. So the buttocks should really look flesh colored. If anything around the buttocks or around the anus or around the labia or scrotum are looking red or angry looking, then you have the beginnings of a rash and you want to start co 
coating it to protect it. Keep in mind, if you have a neonatal abstinence syndrome baby, they are at increased risk for severe diaper rash because many times they will have diarrhea and very acidic stools going on. And that will create very, very terrible diaper rashes. And it's through my work with those types of patients that I discovered a diaper rash cream called Calmoseptine, C-A-L-M-O-S-S-E-P-T-I-N-E. You can get it over the counter. It sounds really fancy but you can get it on Amazon. You can get it at your drugstore. It's a green and white labeled tube. I usually tell people to order the double one on Amazon. I think it's like $14, totally worth it. You can take your Desitin and throw it right out in the garbage. That's what I tell everybody. Desitin really does not work. A lot of people have a lot of other home remedies and different things that work, but I've been doing this for 20 years and I've never seen anything work as fast on a diaper rash as calmoseptine. And basically you would start using that on a, any buttock or bottom area that starts looking red. If the skin is already breaking and bleeding, then that's a beyond rash. That's already been going on for a day or two. And you also want to make sure you're changing the diaper at least eight to 12 times a day. If it's a newborn, every time you feed that baby, you should be changing the diapers to keep that wetness away away from that area. So calmoseptine, you'd start using and you will notice a difference in the baby's diaper rash almost the very next diaper change. Diaper rashes are notoriously known for hanging on and going on for days and days. Babies scream and it's really awful to watch them go through it. But there's nothing like that product out there. And we do use it in the NICU on our neonatal abstinence babies. And it's something I really, really tell parents about. It's like a best kept secret. So, Well, that's great. We'll add that to our tip <laughs> section. So how can you tell the difference between a regular diaper rash and a yeast diaper rash? And is the treatment the same? So a yeast diaper rash is typically going to be a very angry, red, large area over the baby's perineum area and sometimes extending onto the thighs. And sometimes it will have a raised papule look to it and just be very angry and red. If you see a large papule red rash, you would want to talk to your pediatrician because if it is yeast, then it will not be treatable by something like calmoseptine. You would need a prescription nystatin cream for that. And then the baby should be evaluated all over the whole body, including the mouth, because sometimes if they have yeast infection down below, they may have yeast infection in the mouth and also need oral nystatin. Okay. Now, as you promised at the beginning, we're going to talk about colic. I think a lot of parents dread colic, understandably. It is not pleasant for the child nor the parent. So what is colic and how do we treat it? Typically, colic episodes are mostly very long crying episodes that are usually worse at night. They can be really random and not associated with feeding. So when you have a baby with colic, many times you're trying to figure out, is it reflux or is it colic? Because they can mimic each other and look very, very similar. So it's really important when you go to your pediatrician because they're only going to see you and your baby for 10 or 15 minutes. And in order for them to really figure out what's going on and guide you, you need to come with a really good history. So keep a little log on what's going on because just saying to the doctor, I think the baby's colicky, you really want to get the proper diagnosis because in order to fix it, you need the right treatment. So to be sure it's colic, you know, they usually will have a lot of crying episodes that can be worse at night. It can be very random. Like if it's reflux, it's usually associated with right after feeding because their bellies are full and they're going to spit up and they feel that reflux pain or that acid burn. And so they're usually going to scream and cry after feeds. But a colic baby will not usually do it around feeds. It's random. It could be around feeds. It could be nowhere near a feed. And so that is a, a big hallmark difference between reflux and colic cries. 
they usually will have a normal desire to eat. And many times they'll be gaining weight and growing just fine, which can be hard because the foster parent will take the baby and the pediatrician says, everything's fine. The baby's growing on the curve, but the parent just feels like something is off. Something is wrong because the baby is crying a lot. Now, a a colicky baby will have a lot of body tension. They will pull up their legs. They'll stiffen their arms. They'll clench their fists. They can arch their back. Their bellies Mm -hmm. can get a little tense and hard. And they will just have intense crying that seems like they're screaming or even more it's an expression of pain. We're not really sure exactly what causes colic. There's like a lot of ideas and many people feel it has to do with gut. Some people feel it has to do with malalignment and some people will suggest getting a chiropractic adjustment. You know, I don't make those medical recommendations. That's an idea to talk to your pediatrician, but some people will try different things when it's colic. Just people will try anything because it's so hard to watch the baby go through that and very exhausting to have a colicky baby. But I can go over some tips for managing it. So if you feel like your baby has colic or your pediatrician and you have realized that there isn't another medical reason for your baby. So you, you want to make sure you talk to the pediatrician to make sure there's no other medical reason for the crying. And once things have been ruled out and it's really just diagnosed as colic, you would just manage it and you just need to keep in mind that it will get better. They do grow out of it. And you have to just try to do measures to try to get through those crying bouts. A lot of parents really feel like a warm compress, like a little heating pad over their bellies may work. Baby massage is a great thing to learn. There's a lot of videos out there to do it. You you lay the baby down across your lap or somewhere nearby and you do massage over certain parts of their body. I really love bicycle legs. Bicycle legs are when you move their, lay the baby on their back and you move their legs in a bicycle-like motion. But when people usually do it wrong because they just gently move the legs in a bicycle rotation, you really want to push those thighs up into the lower abdomen. So you're really doing a very large bicycle ride and you're kind of using those legs to kind of massage that lower belly. And that will help. Sometimes Mylocon drops can help. A lot of parents really swear by putting the baby in a warm bath during these times. Now, some babies hate baths, but if your baby is a bath lover and they're having a colic episode, a warm bath can help. Making sure your baby is burping after every feed, that's an important skill that you will learn after you have your baby home is how to best burp your baby. So make sure you're getting the burps out. Sometimes colicky babies really love baby wearing. Sometimes just being with you and on you will help comfort them. And sometimes that won't help at all. But if it does, and your baby's one of the ones that snuggling will help a baby wearing time or a baby wearing sling can help that baby just feel close and protected and comforted and keep that baby feeling tight like they're still back in the womb and may help them. Same thing why swaddling will work. So it's another great skill as a new parent taking home a baby is to learn how to swaddle a baby. It's one that I teach in my course. It's very important. Also using things like white noise, taking them out on car rides is a very classic one that will sometimes help lull them to sleep and get out of that colic episode. Putting them on tummy time. So tummy time is when you just put them on their belly. Some will hate it. Some will love it. These are all different tips that you'll have to try and just kind of figure out what pieces of these puzzle will work for your little one. Sometimes a pacifier will help soothe and comfort them. Babies do suck to comfort themselves. It's a natural reflex for about the first two months to try to pacify themselves to sleep and for comfort. And so in these cases, we would try a pacifier to see if that will help as well. All right. And this one doesn't fit under any of the feeding, sleeping, or pooping. But what is the current thinking on circumcision? 
Right. So circumcision is a very controversial issue. And the reason for that is there really is currently no medical indication for getting a circumcision. So there are religious practices that will usually suggest doing a circumcision. And then there are also personal preferences on body autonomy for the infant and allowing the baby to make a decision on that on their own rather than making it for them. So A decision on circumcision is very family-oriented, depending on religion, what has been done in the past in the family, and what your beliefs are for your baby's choices and body autonomy. So we don't recommend it. It's a personal choice. If a parent wants it, then we teach you you how to treat it afterwards. My current thinking, if somebody doesn't know if they want to do it or not, I usually say don't because you can't go back and change your mind after it's mm-hmm. done, but you can always decide later on or the child can, if they want to do it later. Even if that surgery might be a little bit more complicated, it's really one of those surgeries you can't reverse or easily without plastics involved. And so if you're really unsure, then I would say wait. But it's definitely a conversation with your pediatrician and your obstetrician. In most states, it's the obstetricians that actually do that procedure. So that would be someone that would be a great person to get involved in that conversation. Okay, good. I hope you're enjoying this conversation about baby care. It is a topic I absolutely love to talk about. But if you appreciate this content, you will be happy to hear about the free courses we offer at bit.ly slash JBF support. Our partners, the Jockey Bean Family Foundation, are sponsoring a library of courses to support you in building a strong, healthy family. Check it out today at bit.ly slash JBF support. Now we've come to the tips section. You've already mentioned so many. The baby rash cream, say the name again, please. Oh, that would be Calmoceptine, C-A-L-M-O-S-P-E-T-I-N-E, Calmoceptine. Okay. I'll give another one you've already said, and that is don't panic. If things are not how you think they're supposed to be, babies change rapidly. So if your baby is not sleeping and you really wish this baby was, just hang in there. It will. If your baby is not eating well, of course, that's something to check with your doctor. But that babies change and sleep will eventually come. Any other tips for new parents? Sure. I mean, as far as your audience goes, you're, you're we're talking to adoptive and foster parents who are getting ready to bring a newborn into your home. And I think that the best thing to do is, and I think you're already aware, to get as prepared as possible because it's a 24-hour job taking care of the baby. One thing I usually like to say is to get a first aid kit together to have in your home. A family first aid kit is something I teach in my course. I have a great list for it. And I usually say there's, you know, a list of about 20 to 30 things that is really worth it to have in a nice Tupperware or some type of kit. Because many times when a baby's going to have an issue, it's always 11 or midnight, you know, in the middle of the night. (laughs) And depending on where you live, you may have a 24 hour pharmacy or you may have to wait till the morning. And that's a really long night to have to go through and, you know, find that you need a suppository or that you really could have some nasal saline. Many of these things that I suggest in the kit are pretty low cost all over the counter, but really will make your life easier if you have them in the home. So I would suggest getting together a nice kit. 
We will include that in the resources here. Your (laughs) list. Yes, that's a great idea. And, you know, honestly, when people are saying, oh, you know, register, you know, if you're going to have a baby registry, register these things. Yeah, And let people get them to, you know, honestly, another pair of onesies is probably not what you need. They outgrow the newborn stuff so quickly. But this family first aid kit, you will keep forever. Yes, you want a good thermometer in there because that's one of the most important things when your baby's not feeling well is to make sure you know the baby's temperature. Mm-hmm. Many times that might be the only way they display that something is wrong. So having a great thermometer in the house is, is one of the main things. Baby Tylenol, baby Motrin. Again, don't give them to a baby under six months without your pediatrician being aware and you'll need to call them for the doses for those anyway, but just having them there. Another tip that's really important for, you know, a family taking home a newborn is to, you know, take some time to get to know your baby gear. It's really shocking how confusing some of these things can be. I remember trying to set up my diaper genie and having to watch three YouTube videos and feeling like I was a complete (laughs) idiot, not figuring out how to just fill up the diaper genie. I mean, and when your baby's crying or you need this equipment for something, it's really stressful trying to learn it while they need you for something. Baby wraps the same way figure out yeah, how the, those wraps the Moby work. wrap. Yes. Oh watch goodness, videos. Yes. 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 And it's so great. Now, back in the day, we didn't have things like YouTube. Now we have YouTube. So there's so many resources right. available right at our fingertips. But the most important thing would be your car seat making sure that your car seat is set for the baby's weight and age. So you need your car seat manual. You should always keep your car seat manual with your car seat. Most car seats have a little spot for it underneath. You may not realize it, but there's a little spot to keep the manual. And then you would want to make sure your base is attached in your car properly. And you should really have it checked by someone who does car seat checks, usually at your police department or your fire department. They'll have certified people who can check to make sure it's installed properly. So, so, so many car accidents will happen where babies are injured or or die. And it's mostly 80% of them don't have the seats installed right or the baby in the seat properly where it's set for the baby's weight and age. So really read those books really front and back, get to know your car seat. Know also as the baby grows, when it's appropriate to adjust those straps to make sure that they are fitting the baby properly. So that is a major, major safety one. And one that you don't want to be fiddling with on the day of discharge when you have so many things thrown at you and instructions. And now you've still got to figure out how to work your car seat. So that is something you'd want to make sure you do ahead of time. Let me see. I'm trying to think if there were any other major tips that, you know, the baby first aid kit, choosing a pediatrician is really important, but many times in your client's cases, they may have a pediatrician assigned to them. Mm -hmm. So just making sure you have their contact information, you know how to reach them in an emergency. Also really good to know where your nearest children's hospital is. A lot of new parents don't realize that when your baby has an issue, they'll just take the baby to the first hospital that's nearest to where their house is. But many times if these are smaller community hospitals, they aren't trained or they don't have pediatric ERs. And many times your babies will then be transferred from that hospital to another children's hospital, and that can be wasted time. Mm -hmm. And so if you're driving your child to the hospital for some reason, and you have the time to make a little bit of a longer trip to a children's hospital, that's you really want to take an infant or a young child is right to a place where there is a children's ER and a children's hospital. You will get the best care. You will get the specialists. You will not have wasted time. They will be able to take care of any testing that needs to be done. And it's just going to be a better experience all around. So a lot of people don't know that. So if you end up in the Mm -hmm. hospital for some reason, go to a children's hospital. Great point. 
Well, thank you so much, Christine O'Dell, for being with us today to talk about the basics of baby care. We truly appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me today. It was a lot of fun, and I hope I was able to give some value to your listeners today. You have. Today, I want to tell you about one of our oldest partners, and that is Children's Connection. They have been on from almost the beginning of this podcast in supporting our mission. Children's Connection is an adoption agency providing services for domestic infant adoption and embryo donation and adoption throughout the U.S. They also provide home studies and post-adoption support to families in Texas. 